analysis, and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Happy Monday. It is a lovely day to go back to work. Uh, blue skies, sunshine out there. going to be a hot one today. Uh, we got a lot to talk about to get you going, get your week started. We're going to talk to uh, Terry Lake, well-known in this community. Uh, topic, marijuana edibles hitting the shelves this fall. Uh, we'll also talk to Kevin Skreptic, get a sense of the BC wildfire season so far. A bit of an explosion in the number of fires last week. Uh, that has thankfully calmed down a bit. We'll touch base with Kevin in just a little bit. But first off, as we talk to you every Monday, welcome to the program, Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. Good morning, Kyla. Good morning, Shane. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing okay. Could use a little more sleep, but uh, such is a Monday. <laughs> uh, let's start off on uh, on cannabis, uh, Kyla. Interesting study last week basically saying, listen, uh, taking marijuana containing low levels of THC does not increase most drivers' risk of a crash, uh, even though apparently our drug-impaired driving laws would penalize these drivers. Uh, this all coming out of a UBC study published last week. Uh, more than 3,000 people who were injured in, in, a, in some kind of a crash while behind the wheel were tested for THC levels in their blood to come up with all this. Uh, interesting? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I, it reminds me, actually, of what we were talking about last week about the president of Mad Canada coming out and saying that um, the presence of cannabis is the leading cause of death on our roadways. In fact, the yeah. statistical research that's been done by UBC in Canada on Canadian drivers would tend to show that, in fact, the opposite is likely true. So the interesting thing here is the findings uh, found that anyone with less than 5 nanograms of THC per milliliter of blood uh, is not really at that much risk of causing a crash. But the criminal code sets the legal limit, as I understand it, for THC concentrations from 2 to 5 nanograms. So uh, I suppose this presents something of a problem. Does it mean we need to take another look at the limit, possibly, Kyla, or what? Oh, absolutely. We definitely need to take another look at that law and whether or not it's appropriate to amend the law to get rid of the offense for being between two and five nanograms of THC in your system. I mean, even when the government introduced this law, they said, you know, we're trying to prohibit people from engaging in something that would approach criminal activity, which to me doesn't say that that's a good faith basis for enacting the law. And now that there is Canadian research out there that has said that this is not something that should be uh, criminalized because it doesn't result in an increased risk. Uh, I think our government has an obligation to take a hard look at that law and ask itself whether it's really necessary. How much of a role in all this would having some kind of a roadside device that actually works? I mean, how would that factor? We know that right now we don't. Uh, but if we're looking at sort of learning a little bit more about the impacts of THC, what would that mean for any potential roadside device? I think it would have to be a device that can not just measure the presence of THC in a person's system, but also their impairment by it. Um, you know, doing a series of cognitive or physical tests to confirm that somebody is impaired in their ability to drive. And we're getting closer. Uh, I did receive word recently that uh, a company claims to have developed a device that can adequately predict cognitive impairment by THC in the ability to drive. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Now, of course, in October, we legalized uh, cannabis, uh, the flower, but we will have a second phase legalization we learned uh, last week that is coming this fall. That is marijuana edibles. Cannabis edibles will hit the shelves. In your mind, I mean, you guys have done tests on kombucha and soy sauce and all sorts of things uh, and compared it to what we know so far in cannabis. But if uh, when, and when, I should say, edibles hit the markets this fall, does that present a new and different challenge when it comes to consumption and the impacts in the body, et cetera? 
It absolutely does. The way that your body metabolizes edible cannabis as compared to smoked cannabis is completely different. And the physical effects that you feel as a result of it are also completely different. So for people who are consuming edible cannabis products, um, they don't become high right away. Whereas if you smoke it, you know, within a couple of minutes, you're experiencing the high. This leads to a huge increase in the risk when it comes to driving because people think that they're fine. They feel fine. They took it. They're like, oh, I guess it didn't work. And they drive and then they become impaired while they're behind the wheel and the effects are much more significant and last a lot longer do we and this is a bit of a, an ambiguous question because i assume it relies a lot in, on what they're eating and how much they're eating and each person's body and how they how they digest food but do we know even vaguely what the diff what the delay there is as composed to smoking it Roughly half an hour to an hour after ingestion, and then the high or the impairing effects will last about six hours. So it's a long period of time. If you're going to be consuming cannabis edibles, uh, you should be doing it when you have somewhere to stay for the night uh, or when you're not planning to drive for basically the rest of the day. So while cannabis so far uh, hasn't resulted in the drug-impaired driving catastrophe that, that some people predicted in before the advent of legalization, uh, what I'm getting from you is when uh, edibles hit the shelves, this potentially could potentially kind of increase the risk then? It could, and that's what we've seen in the United States. In all of the states that have legalized cannabis, these spikes in cannabis-impaired driving have now been related to um, people's unfamiliarity with edibles, overdoing it the first time, misjudging whether they're going to become impaired and misjudging their level of impairment. Let's talk about, uh, we talked about cannabis uh, and drug-impaired driving. Let's talk about distracted driving. There's an interesting case, a gentleman named Patrick Tannhauser, uh, whose distracted driving charge was dismissed because his cell phone was immobilized via an app. Uh, it came in a decision last week. The B.C. Court of Appeal agreed to hear a crown appeal of the case. The outcome of this case, as I understand it, may help uh, clear up a gray area and determine if phone-disabling apps will hold any merit when fighting a distracted driving ticket. Uh, you would probably know a little bit more about this than I would, but uh, what's the import of this particular case, Kyla? This case is going to resolve a conflict in the law about whether or not your phone has to be operational for you to be receiving a ticket for distracted driving. There are some cases, cases involving phones with dead batteries, where the courts have said, nope, even, even if the battery is dead and you can't use the phone, it's still an electronic device and, and having it in your vehicle, holding it, touching it is enough to, uh, to get the ticket. Whereas in this case, the individual had an app that would, or would prohibit the phone from being used while the vehicle was in motion. It was moving it out of the way to access something else in his vehicle and got the ticket in those circumstances. And the court said that was due diligence on his part. He was trying to comply with the law. That decision was upheld on appeal for different reasons. Uh, the BC Supreme Court judge said it essentially ceased to be an electronic device in those circumstances on the basis of the fact that it had been disabled and could no longer transmit uh, or receive data. Um, and so the Court of Appeal is going to have the opportunity now to sort of reconcile those two lines of authority and determine whether or not a disabled phone constitutes a violation of the law. How do you define a disabled phone? For example, I have an iPhone 6. Uh, Apple put an interesting little thing in the iPhones that you can turn on, and I advise people to do it. Uh, but my phone senses when I'm driving, and it, I have to literally say, okay, I'm not driving in order to access my phone. Is that different from, from any other kind of immobilizing app? Does that count or no? 
Well, that's a big question that the court's going to have to decide because using that app, you are transmitting data. The app is asking you a question. It's transmitting and computing and processing data to ask you the question. And if you answer the question, that's also transmitting and computing and processing data. It's using a feature of the phone, which is something that's specifically defined in the legislation as use, even though the feature is designed to keep you from using the phone in the common sense term. Um, so, so there is a real lack of clarity in the law. In my view, Apps like that should be encouraged and people should be allowed to use them because it's, it's creating a culture of compliance with the, the spirit of the law, um, which is what we really want. We want people to separate the distraction from their driving. Um, another case that, that, is, that has caught uh, your eye, Merit, and it came out of Merit, Merit RCMP clocked, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, but it's, uh, I'm going to pronounce it Miss G. Chu. Uh, she got busted doing 166 k in a 110 zone. And apparently, as I understand the story, Kyla, the police must have told her they're going to impound her vehicle. Uh, that did not pass muster with Miss Chu, and she took off and uh, led police in something of a chase, managed to evade them and get down to the Lower Mainland. She was eventually tracked down and arrested, and now the province is saying, hey, listen, this lady's a bit of a risk. She's a, she's a risk on the road. She could cause harm to herself or others. And they're invoking uh, the civil forfeiture law to try and uh, grab her Land Rover. Um, what do you make of all this? Am I allowed to say I told you so? I mean, the government <laughs> uh, the government introduced changes to the civil forfeiture regime that would make it easier for police to seize vehicles. And it appears that now the police are already emboldened by this. And absolutely what was done in this case was dangerous, and, and she put the public at risk. Um, but the problem that arises uh, in these circumstances is that it shows that the police are already taking steps in advance of the matter going to court, in advance of her being you know convicted of any offense in relation to this um, to try and take away her vehicle without relying on existing processes that could easily do that, including a lengthy or indefinite driving prohibition issued by the superintendent of motor vehicles or a probation order or a bail condition from the court to prohibit her from being in possession of a vehicle. Um, and, and I think defaulting to civil forfeiture and defaulting to this mechanism that is for profit of the government um, is heavy handed and unnecessary in a case like this. It seems it all breaks down to the definition of the quote unquote instrument of unlawful activity which they're relying on here in this case she led police on a chase did something really stupid apparently she has something of a rather spotty driving record there's other charges including distracted driving etc etc um an instrument of unlawful activity is that the gray area here it is, um, because the law doesn't define instrument of unlawful activity in a way that's really consistent with what civil forfeiture was designed to do in the first place. The whole purpose of civil forfeiture was to take the profits of crime out of the hands of people who were who were committing crimes and who benefited from it. You know, if you, if you were laundering money and you used that laundered money to buy a house or if you were selling drugs and you bought yourself a really fancy car with the, with the profits of your, your drug sales, the government could take that from you and say, you don't get to have these nice things because you committed crimes in order to get them. This is very different. This is a vehicle. Um, there's some indication that this person may be a mother and may need their vehicle to, to you know, drive their kid around. A vehicle is not just an instrument of unlawful activity because it's been used one time or, or even a couple times to do something unlawful. It's also a person's means to get to and from work, to take their family around, to run errands, and to live their lives. Just a real quick question on that. Can legally, in whether it's this situation or others, can legally the province impound, confiscate, 
take your vehicle when you rely on it for your livelihood or no? Uh, they can, um, and it's for you to prove that the vehicle was not uh, used unlawfully um, or that uh, that the government is not entitled to pursue a civil forfeiture action. So even if you rely on it for your livelihood, they can take it. And the answer to that is buy yourself another vehicle, which is ridiculous because it, it shows the flaw in the civil forfeiture scheme. If your solution is to buy a different vehicle, then you're not prohibiting somebody from using their vehicle to commit crimes. You're just giving them a different vehicle to do it with. Kyla, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That's Kyla Lee. She's with Acumen Law. We talk to her every single Monday here on The Woodford Show. We'll take a quick break. On the other side, we'll talk edibles with Terry Lake. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back. Canada is going to embark on its second wave of cannabis legalization, which will see edibles, concentrates, and topicals all become available, hit the shelves for recreational consumption this fall, October 17th to be exact. Talk about that. The Vice President of Corporate Social Responsibility and a guy well-known to this community, Terry Lake, joining us. Good morning, Terry. How are you? Good morning, Shane. I'm doing well from sunny St. John, New Brunswick. Wow, one coast to the other. Uh, yeah. Tell me, uh, we've seen the flower legalized. Uh, we've seen the first phase of legalization. Uh, when edibles hit the shelves this fall, Terry, what does that do? How does that change the game? Well, it changes it dramatically. Uh, there's a lot of people that um, have you know, not come into the legal cannabis market uh, because either they're looking at the uh, gray market and finding their choice of product in that market, or they're just not comfortable with the product forms that are available and they're waiting for something that is more amenable uh, because they may not want to smoke cannabis. They may want to have it in an edible or drinkable form. And uh, also uh, we will have concentrate. So, you know, vaporization of products will be uh, available and um, drinkable products as well. So the, the array of products will be much, much greater once these new forms come online and I think we'll have a a, a more mature cannabis market and that's what people are looking for. The market so far, there's been some evidence that uh, we have a supply issue. Um, I don't know where we're at in addressing that, but if we head to this fall and that issue is unchanged, there's still a supply strain and edibles hit the market. Does that further exacerbate an existing problem or no? Well, I think the problem is resolving rapidly. Uh, our company is a good example of, you know, uh, expansion plans that have come forward, have been completed, and, and harvests are coming out of those new expanded greenhouses. And we're seeing that across the country. So I think the supply issue is largely uh, getting resolved, and all of the LPs, the licensed producers, are getting ready to produce these new forms. Uh, you know, our uh, joint venture with Molson Coors Canada, for instance, will produce uh, cannabis beverages. And uh, so we're getting ready. The, the one issue is not always the supply of the cannabis, but the supply chain issues that come with it. And some of the regulations we've seen uh, cause a bit of a problem, and not just a problem in supply chain, but really uh, from an environmental standpoint, don't make a lot of sense. For instance, uh, maximum 10 milligrams of any edible product or drinkable product so that basically means that every 10 milligram product form has to be individually wrapped individually packaged and so it's almost like selling mini bar size uh, drinks 
uh, as the maximum serving. And from an environmental standpoint, this makes no sense whatsoever. The industry told Health Canada that, and they have not made changes uh, that reflect that consultation that we had with them. And that's disappointing given, you know, the, the, the plastics ban uh, that's coming, given the concern about too much packaging. Uh, they really have not uh, had a whole-of-government approach to this type of regulation. I don't know if you're listening into the Kyla Lee segment at all, but uh, one of the things she brought up when I asked her about edibles is uh, we know that there was some fear on the drug-impaired driving front that so far has not really materialized. Uh, her concern is when it comes to, to drinks and edibles that are infused with cannabis that uh, they digest differently, and there's the potential for someone to, to eat something that it has cannabis in it. They think, hey, you know what, I feel great, I feel fine, I'm good to go. Uh, and then they hit the road, and then all of a sudden, whammo, it impacts, and they're an impaired driver. Do you have a concern along those lines or no? Well, edibles are different. It takes longer for absorption to occur. So someone may, uh, you know, drink something or eat something, and they don't wait enough time to determine the impact it has on them. And so they have another. And then when it does hit them, yes, they're, they're, uh, they're further along than they want it to be. So we always say start low and go slow. And that's why 10 milligram maximum dose in any one product form makes a lot of sense. It just doesn't make sense to have that individually wrapped, individually packaged. In the U.S., for instance, in Washington State, you can have 10 10 milligram cookies in one package, but each dosage form is individually wrapped. That makes a lot of sense so that, you know, you have one 10 milligram uh, edible and then you wait. And, And education is a big part of that. And all retailers of edible products, all the cannabis stores, will emphasize that to customers. How long do you think it's going to take the edibles market to mature? I'm sure you guys have some products that are you're working on and, and you want to get on the shelves in October. Uh, but my sense, as on the flower side, is that there there's an evolution in this thing. Do you think we're going to see all these products right away, or is it going to take a certain amount of time for the edible thing to sort of evolve unto itself? No, it'll take some time. I mean, some companies will be further ahead than others. Uh, and we've got cosmetics, uh, you know, topicals as part of that as well. So... Um, we'll see uh, before Christmas some of the product lines come on, and I suspect that'll be the drinks, uh, some of the um, uh, edible products like gummies and cookies. Uh, we'll see vape uh, products coming on stream. Uh, but each month that goes by, you'll see this mature and mature. So I think it'll take a year, a uh, year and a half, uh, before we see a full product array. Uh, but in some communities, we may not see any because more and more communities in BC of all places are saying no to cannabis, which doesn't make a lot of sense. And, you know, our, what we hear is that local governments are upset that the provinces are sharing more revenue with them. And so until that happens, they're basically shutting out cannabis. So that's a problem in British Columbia that needs to be resolved. And on that topic, I talked to Finance Minister Carol James on Friday uh, and asked her about the cannabis revenue sharing. Uh, as you know, they're talking to the UBCM to try and find some kind of a formula uh, she would not right, say yes or no or what the timeline was, Terry, but she did give me the strong sense that, uh, according to her, that the, the, the revenue is not there. It's not coming in. The costs are outweighing the revenue. And until there's a finite sense of what the revenue pool is, they don't feel comfortable doing a deal with UBCM. So in my mind, that puts it off for quite a while. What do you think of that? Oh, I think it's crazy. I mean, the, the fact is there's no revenue coming because they're not approving licenses. We've got people in Kamloops that are spending five or $6,000 a month uh, holding up a lease that they can't use because the government is so slow at approving licenses. So, of course, the revenue isn't coming in. 
the federal government gave up a whole bunch of money uh, to the provinces. And the intention was that some of that would go down to the local government that has to, you know, do a lot of uh, regulation and bylaws and enforcement uh, to cover those costs. And, and that isn't happening in BC. That's, that's a huge problem. And we're hoping, and I've indicated to UBCM President Arjun Singh, that this needs to be discussed at the UBCM conference in, in uh, September. We had the mayor of St. John open the, the conference here, uh, Don Darling, and he is embracing cannabis and saying that, you know, they want to partner with the province and the federal government and industry to create centers of excellence for research. Uh, they want to have, you know, the retailing going on in this, uh, in this city. They know that the economic benefit and spinoff helps their city doesn't harm their city. So we need more local governments to embrace cannabis, but I think that will happen if the province gives them a proper share of the revenue that will come through this stream. Interesting times. Uh, Terry, always good to talk to you. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Shane. That's Terry Lake. He is the Vice President of Corporate Social Responsibility for the Hexo Corporation and, as you know, is also the Liberal candidate in the Kamloops-Thompson Caribou for the upcoming fall federal election. We'll take a quick break to the bottom of the hour. More Woodford Show after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, I talked to Finance Minister Carol James on Friday, and it was a pretty interesting discussion covering a broad array of issues, including money laundering and the teacher negotiations. I thought it was worth a listen back uh, to get a sense of what she had to say on those topics. So uh, here is the uh, interview from Friday, Finance Minister Carol James. Carol, yesterday you were part of a meeting along with Attorney General David Eby, a uh, meeting with your federal counterpart in Bill Morneau and Organized Crime Reduction Minister uh, Bill Blair on the topic of money laundering. Uh, just curious from your perspective, uh, what, if anything, that was concrete and that BC can look forward to came out of that? Well, I think the, the first step was actually getting the other provinces and the federal government all at the table to talk about an issue that British Columbians, unfortunately, uh, know the impact of. Um, when we're talking about money laundering in British Columbia, as you know, uh, both the attorney, David Eby, and myself have commissioned reports. We've now uh, struck a public inquiry on the issue of money laundering. And people may think that it's an issue that doesn't impact them. But when we're talking about uh, the real estate sector and increasing price of houses, whether we're talking about the fentanyl crisis and the opioid, uh, you know, all of those issues are fueled by money laundering, by dirty money coming into British Columbia. And those issues, as we know, sadly, impact families across BC. So getting everyone at the table is critically important. Uh, I've said often that, you know, criminals don't know provincial borders. They don't know boundaries. And so if you have one province that closes a loophole, uh, the criminals will find another opportunity to be able to look somewhere else. So it's really important to be able to have these discussions together. The federal government committed to a joint table uh, to be able to include all of the provinces that want to, to be there. So I think that's one step is to be able to look at how we move the kinds of actions that we've taken in British Columbia across the country. Something like a land registry that, that we've created in BC, first of its kind, uh, world leading, will require companies, corporations, numbered companies, trusts, 
to actually disclose who's behind that trust so that they can't hide behind the corporate veil uh, and and we make sure that that's transparent so making sure we have opportunities for for that kind of work is critically important the other thing the federal government brought to the table yesterday uh, was 10 million dollars for the RCMP I think it would be no surprise to anyone that uh, we certainly feel that that's not enough uh, that we need to see more resources uh, and we need to see dedicated resources it's really the piece that we've been a bit frustrated by uh, is that uh, we really feel you need a specific unit that looks at prosecution and criminals uh, when it comes to the RCMP in the area of money laundering because they face pressures as well and the money gets used somewhere else so we want to see dedicated funds on that RCMP funding, and I agree with you, I think we've all been shocked by uh, the revelations trotted out by Sam Cooper over at Global uh, about the lack of policing resources focused on this particular issue. Now, uh, Bill Blair was asked in the press scrum yesterday uh, where that RCMP funding would go. Uh, his quote back was, and I'll repeat it here, he said it's going to go dedicated to where the work is. Carol, how much of that, how much assurances do you have that, that what portion of that money or all of it or whatever is coming to this province and dedicated specifically to our problems here? Well, yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head, and, and we were quite upfront uh, with the Federal Finance Minister and with Bill Blair uh, to say that um, words are great, uh, commitments are great, but we want to see the fencing of those dollars. We want to see them actually dedicated specifically to the issue of money laundering because, you know, we're now starting to share data. We're starting to shine a light uh, on what's out there, but that's not going to do any good unless we have the RCMP, the cops on the ground, the people will be able to prosecute these cases and to be able to move them ahead uh, you know we saw a very high profile case fall apart uh, in British Columbia and, and no one wants to see that so uh, I think they were good words and, and I'm certainly pleased that the federal government has come to the table and encouraged other provinces to join us but we really want to see the details we want to see the details of the dollars and we want to see them dedicated so that you know RCMP obviously have a lot of demands and a lot of issues for the, themselves to deal with as a force unless they are dedicated resources they'll get pulled off for other activities and we won't get any further ahead so we want to see the action around that i want to jam in a couple extra topics here as the finance minister uh, i'm sure you've seen what has been an unprecedented wave of bad news in just the last couple of weeks for bc's forestry sector uh for any any news coming carol on on pots of money or funding uh to try and help out in this situation or no well, I think first off, uh, I think all of us, uh, you know, I know certainly the forest minister, but all of us in, in government and all of us in communities uh, send our, our sympathies to the workers, their families, and, and the communities that are impacted by these closures. Uh, it's unfortunate. It's it's not unexpected, sadly. Uh, it's been known for over 10 years with the pine beetle infestation, uh, for example, that, that mills would have to shut down, that there was going to be a lack of fiber. And, and I think it's frustrating, certainly, that, that we didn't see any action being taken when those warnings came at least 10 years ago. Um, but we have put additional dollars in this budget. Uh, people will know when I tabled the budget in February, we put additional dollars in for wildfire prevention activities. Um, that's certainly going to provide some, some short-term work and some short-term support for workers. We're talking with the federal government uh, about making sure supports are in place as well for communities. 
um, to secure more funds for employment programs. Um, it's also important to us uh, that we work together with the, the forest companies, with First Nations, with communities, uh, and with labor to look at the challenges and how we get more value from the forest industry. So the Premier uh, made that statement and commitment uh, at Forest uh, Council's meeting, uh, and that's work that's underway as well. So uh, I think we, we're certainly doing everything we can. As people know, we have, the, of course, the softwood lumber debate uh, and fight going on. Um, we certainly aren't going to do anything that's going to, to ramp that up uh, because that will cause even more difficulties if you, for example, um, uh, politically got involved with, with stumpage fees when those are, are done independently. Uh, that obviously would cause even more difficult difficulty for the industry. So we're going to be there for the communities and we're doing everything we can. As you and I are talking, we're getting news about uh, another group of uh, school support workers represented by QP who have reached deals with your government, uh, but the BCTF and BCPC have hit uh, what looks like an impasse in class size and composition. As you watch these negotiations through the lens of being the finance minister, what's your concern level? Well, I, again, I'm always an optimist. Uh, perhaps that's uh, just my personality, but uh, I still believe that, you know, we all want to make sure that we have a strong education system. We put major resources, as people know, uh, one of the largest investments in public education when we came in as government in, in 2017. We all want to make sure the system works, most importantly for students, but also for teachers, uh, support staff, others who, who do an incredible job in the system. So I think, you know, we're in, in the process of bargaining we we've hit some bumps and uh and i think certainly we're going to continue our our commitment at the table and and i know that the the teachers have the same commitment to try and get an agreement so i i continue to be optimistic about our our opportunities here but i'll leave bargaining to the bargaining table i think mm -hmm. that's best where it's done yeah fair enough last question now ubcm convention coming in september uh any idea if we can see a marijuana tax revenue sharing agreement done with local governments before then carol or no well, we've certainly been in conversation uh, with UBCM. We've been having some very good conversations. I think, uh, to, to be blunt, I think the challenge we face right now is there's not revenue coming in. Um, the costs are outweighing the revenue coming in, so we haven't seen a, a big boom, and people will know we, we lowered the estimates for, for cannabis revenue over the next year. There are a number of reasons for that. There obviously was a delay in legalization. It didn't happen on Canada Day. You also saw the uh, municipalities have their elections in the fall, which meant you didn't have structure in place to be able to approve licenses. Criminal record checks still have to be gone through because ultimately we want to make sure we get organized crime out of the business uh, of cannabis. And so that's delayed uh, a number of licenses being open. So uh, we're certainly continuing those conversations, but uh, I think it'll be a bit until we start seeing additional revenue to, be actu to actually be able to share uh, with municipalities. And that was BC Finance Minister Carol James in an interview we did on Inside Politics on Friday. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. We're going to get caught up with the BC wildfire season today. Kevin Skrebnik joins us. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back. As I mentioned off the top of the show, it's blue skies and sunshine out there. 
Uh, it's going to be a beautiful summer day, which is great on one hand. On the other hand, it does raise the risk when you consider wildfire starts. Pleasure to welcome to the program to talk about the wildfire season so far. This province's chief fire information officer, Kevin Skrepnik. Good morning, Kevin. How are you? Uh, good morning, Shane. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. So, hey, listen, yep. we had a bit of an explosion of wildfire activity last week. It was hot and dry. Uh, I did uh, take off to the coast over the weekend. I was coming back yesterday and uh, went through some significant rain, which hopefully helped out a bit uh, wherever that went through the interior. Uh, but it's uh, blue sky and hot again today. So maybe just catch me up. Uh, how are we looking so far? Well, I mean, it's definitely been a, an up and down spring uh, in terms of fire activity uh, in so far. Uh, kind of looking at it broadly, I mean, you know, we, we haven't had any, you know, major incidents in so far, uh, you know, other than, uh, you know, a couple uh, scattered ones here and there. Um, so that's definitely good news, but obviously, uh, you know, this is usually kind of the ramp up at this time of year. It's, it's not often that we're seeing kind of screaming busy fire activity uh, this early, at least in the southern part of the province. So uh, definitely kind of looking at the statistics, we're, we're almost exactly on average uh, in terms of the number of fires we've had uh, in so far this year, uh, and actually pretty dramatically below our average um, in terms of hectares burned, in terms of the size of these fires. Uh, we've only had a little over 11,000 uh, hectares burned since April 1st. The 10-year the average for this date would be closer to about 25,000, So, um, and that's skewed somewhat by a few busy springs we've had in the past, but uh, still, generally speaking, um, thankfully, has been a relatively quiet uh, season up until this point. Now, one of the things that's always the wild card is the weather, Mother Nature. Uh, she's handed you a bit of a mixed basket so far. Uh, as you look at the forecast from today on, uh, does she look like she's friend or foe? Uh, it's going to be a mixed bag uh, going forward. Uh, just stepped out of our uh, just stepped out of our daily weather briefing here, so certainly you know we're expecting some fairly unstable weather over the next little while. Uh, you know potential for some lightning across a pretty broad swath of the province today, um, particularly the northern half of the province and lots of areas of the east as well. Um, and of course the concern for us, you know, lightning uh, in and of itself is a concern, but especially if that's dry lightning. Um, you know, if it's fairly convective like what you saw yesterday, you know, local downpours, a little bit of lightning. Obviously, if the ground's wet, uh, things are going to be a little less volatile in terms of fire starting, but if that lightning is relatively dry, that's when we can see those, uh, you know, really uh, bust days where we'll have, you know, dozens of fires start at once. So, keeping a close eye on that weather forecast, thankfully, in terms of the kind of path ahead, looking at the next six to ten days, certainly some areas of the province are going to remain relatively dry. That's definitely a concern, but we are expecting things to get a little bit more seasonal. Uh, temperatures are going to get a lot, of co- a lot cooler later in the week, uh, and a lot of areas will see some rain, but definitely some concern around particular patches, particularly in the south, uh, where there's not much rain, if any, you know, forecasted. So if those areas remain dry, obviously the hazard really has nowhere to go but up from there. A few weeks ago, you guys made a little bit of news when you put out a forecast that it sounded a fairly grim tone, basically saying the signs are there uh, for another potentially brutal wildfire season. Does that does that sort of forecast that look ahead still hold up now, Kevin, or no? Well, the, the month of June is really critical. Um, the, the rain that we get or that we don't get in June uh, is really going to be a deciding factor in terms of how the season goes ahead. So, you know, we did put out a, a bit of an outlook piece in the early part of the month, you know, suggesting kind of looking at the tea leaves right now, uh, there is definitely conditions in place for a busier than normal season. Um, of course, with the proviso that, you know, the last two years have been exponentially uh, above normal in terms of uh, in terms of activity. So not necessarily saying we're expecting another 2017 or 2018. 
uh, but you know, busier than uh, what we would have typically seen over the last, say, 10 years, 20 years. Um, that, of course, is always with a grain of salt, though, those forecasts. As you said, uh, Mother Nature is fickle, and uh, the kind of conditions that impact wildfire activity are very, very short-term. You know, rain is such a critical factor. It's, it's really difficult forecasting rain more than a few days ahead of time. So that's why the wildfire service has to rely so much on those short-term forecasts. We really have to look at that kind of three- to five-day picture to know, um, you know where we're going to have the greatest need, where there's the greatest potential uh, for things to get started. Um, we've had, as you know, two historic wildfire seasons back to back. So you would think, uh, where it concerns wildfires, that it would be more or less on people's radar, sort of top of mind, because we've had so many headlines over the last two summers about these things. But uh, I'm looking at, at your data right now, and uh, according to this, we've got 330 fires to date, 63 starts in the last week alone. Um, of those, Kevin, 37% or roughly 125 wildfires person cause. Uh, your reaction to that is that is that a high number? Is that a disappointing number? Well, at this time of year, um, you know, we've had a little bit of lightning, but uh, it typically doesn't become a, a bigger factor until later uh, in the summer. You know, we typically don't start seeing a whole lot of lightning uh, in turn until uh, you know July, August. So it's not uncommon to see a, a disproportionately large number of uh, human-caused fires at this time of year in terms of our percentage of, of total. Um, typically, by the end of a season, uh, we're more into the 60-40, kind of 70-30 split in terms of, you know, about 70% lightning cause versus 30% human cause. Those were the stats last year. Um, again, usually it's a little closer to 60-40. So um, not unusual to have that many human cause fires this time of year uh, in terms of the overall percentage. Um, obviously... Every one of those fires was preventable in one form or another when we're talking about human cause, and, and more often than not, you know, it's just a, a matter of carelessness. And I think, uh, you know, a big concern at this time of year, given that we haven't seen really significant activity yet for the most part, is that, of course, people are going to be complacent. So if they're doing backyard burning, if they're, uh, you know, recreating out in the backcountry, um, fire isn't that top of mind. Uh, and as a result, sometimes uh, people can be a little careless out there. How do we how do we bring that number down though? I mean, it seems to me I'm sure that there's some things that are just, you know, you're you're ripping around your ATV, you can't prevent it, you can't stop a spark from jumping up. We had a case in Kamloops here where some kids are just playing with a lighter, and, and then we're off to the races. And I'm sure there's a few of those in there. Uh, how, is it education? Do we need to start handing out and be regular about handing out fines, Kevin? I mean, how do we get these ones down? These stupid ones. Yeah, I mean, I think I think education is definitely an element of it, um, and certainly enforcement in terms of getting out there, finding that's definitely something that's been stepped up over the last few years, both in terms of the compliance and enforcement branch of, uh, of our own ministry, the conservation officers, local police, you know, across the board. That's definitely a message people are trying to get out. Um, you know, and I think... I think that education piece is key because I think there's a lot of, you know, quite frankly, I think a lot of people have a concept in their mind that fires start because of discarded cigarettes or campfires, things like that. And those are definitely concerns. And we definitely have fires every year that are the result of cigarettes and campfires. But, um, you know, it, looking at the percentage, it's much higher um, in terms of things like what you had mentioned, you know, um, people conducting, you know, larger scale open burns machine use, you know, sparks off of vehicles, sparks off machinery, you know, industrial activity, railways. 
and I think a lot of people just don't understand that those things can actually generate enough heat to start a fire. So it is it is a bit of awareness piece, I think. At the same time, though, that enforcement element has to come in because there's always going to be people, no matter what education you've got out there, no matter what awareness, there's people who are still going to unfortunately make bad decisions. So that enforcement piece is still pretty key. And of course, we want people reporting that to Star 5555 uh, as soon as possible if they're spotting either a fire uh, or people acting responsible, irresponsibly out there. Uh, last question, we only got a couple minutes left, but uh, every fire season is different. I mean, we've had historic wildfire seasons back-to-back, but they were dynamically different seasons as well. Uh, I know this season is, is young in its sort of infancy, but have you seen anything that kind of sticks out to you as, as unique to this year this far or something unusual so far? Or no? Um, I, I think the one kind of blip we had, um, you know, earlier in May, um, we had a few weeks there where it was just unseasonably hot and dry, uh, especially for that time of year. So we were seeing some pretty exceptional fire activity, uh, particularly in the central part of the province. And that was, of course, just due to the fact that we had that weather. Uh, it was kind of the perfect conditions for things to be quite active. Uh, beyond that, though, no. I mean, to, to be frank, it's been a relatively normal start to the season. But again, you know, as we've been talking about, that's not necessarily a, an indicator of what's to come. So still want people being prepared and uh, one way or another we're going to have fires this summer. It's uh, just kind of a question of what the intensity is going to be. So obviously want people to be to be vigilant. If you're going to circle a part of the calendar that's sort of your danger period right now, mm-hmm. what would that be? Uh, I mean, typically um, you can pretty much set your watch to the fact that, you know, that late July to late August period is usually going to be your most intense. Uh, but that's tricky. I mean, you look at 2017 as an example, uh, the first week of July was when a lot of those major fires started. So we could only be a few weeks out uh, if the conditions line up. Mr. Skrebnik, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you. My pleasure. As BC's Chief Fire Information Officer, Kevin Skrebnik, discussing the wildfire season so far. And that brings to an end this edition of the Woodford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. 106.7 Logan Lake, 98.1 Blue River, 97.5 Avola. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM. Local news now.